You're listening to episode 231 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Shana tova, Leslie. Shana tova to you too, my friend. And to all of our listeners, and of course, those who will be observing Yom Kippur over the weekend, uh, have, a, have a solemn and contemplative fast, or whatever you choose to do. Yes. And in other news, it's spooky season. Today is September 21st as we record this, and I have had my first candy corn of the season. So, When you put it that way, it makes it sound like you had one, whereas apparently you actually had an entire bag before starting recording this podcast. I didn't an entire bag. I may have had a handful, but yeah, I have, I have the sugar shakes. I'll Wait, all this talk about the sugar shakes is based on a handful of candy corn? Wimp. It was a big handful, man. You're the a first taste of candy corn for the season. This is a momentous day, Dan. Don't discredit me. <laughs> and you haven't had any sugar since last November 1st. <laughs> Not a bit. And suddenly you're just pouring it all in. Anyway, happy candy corn season to those who celebrate that as well. Yes, don't at me if you don't. Uh, we got a big episode this week. Lots going on with the strikes to talk about. And we're doing something a little bit different with our guest this week. Joining us is the Chief Operating Officer of the Entertainment Community Fund. We've talked a lot on this show about how the studios and streamers are weathering the strikes. And now we're going to take a different angle and look at the people who have been affected by them the most. We like to give different perspectives, and this is absolutely one. There has been some other big news in the media this week beyond the strikes. Then this is how much we're going to talk about Rupert Murdoch. Yep, that's definitely a thing that is happening in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that anyone really wants us to say anything in depth about Rupert Murdoch uh, stepping down as chairman or whatever to just become emeritus or whatever. We're uh, talking about Rupert Murdoch's legacy or whatever. You know what? If you're interested in reading about that, we have a friend of the five on staff here. The Hollywood Reporter by the name of Alex Weprin. You may have heard him on last week's episode talking about the Disney Charter standoff. He is all over the Rupert Murdoch story. You can follow him on social at, at Alex Weprin, W-E-P-R-I-N. Great reporter covering the Murdoch story. And in this case, doing so so that we don't have to. Well done. And now on to this week's show. Number one. We're going to lead off again with the mailbag. As we've said, during the strike, the deal-making continues to be slow. So instead, we're relying on you, our valued listeners, to send us your questions that you'd like to hear us discuss in every episode. So if you've got a question for us, we've probably got an answer. You can drop us a note at TV's Top 5, that's the numeral 5, at THR.com. Our first question this week comes from Jesse, who writes that Dan continues to praise reservation dogs and is wondering, Dan, if you could do a three-minute elevator pitch on why you think the show is so good. First off, I'm not going to set a clock on this, so this will either be a 90-second elevator pitch or a five-minute elevator pitch or whatever it is. I would also add that one of the things I've said with some regularity on this podcast and elsewhere is that it's been very rare that I've heard from anybody who, when I recommended Reservation Dogs, didn't immediately come back and like, yeah, I like that show. And to Jesse's credit, Jesse's email also mentioned that they uh, watched some of Reservation Dogs and weren't necessarily in love with it. And also, guess what? That's totally fine. There are lots of TV shows and not everybody needs to love everything. And also not everyone needs to love everything as much as I do. If you watch Reservation Dogs and your reaction is, I like it, that's fine. 
not necessarily it's the best show on TV, like Dan Feinberg keeps saying. That's entirely acceptable. So, okay, I guess my pitch is probably, and I should also add that, you know, it's not like I haven't been writing about the show and, you know, multiple seasons reviews, talking about it on the podcast, etc. The thing to me that stands out about Reservation Dogs, which for those of you who should know, is uh, Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi's show about a group of teens living on a, a Native American reservation in Oklahoma and living their lives. It's become significantly more than that. It kind of started off as here are these four characters who sometimes like to rip off uh, convenience store trucks and steal chips. And while that was a part of last week's episode, it mostly hasn't been really what the show has been about. Actually, quick, Leslie, when did we have the creator of Reservation Dogs on the podcast? That would be, we had Sterling Harjo on the show in episode 132 from August 13th, 2021. It was a really good conversation and would still be informative. My pitch for the show has always been, it is an absolutely perfect alchemistic mixture of the universal and the specific. There was a dumb situation when the Roseanne Barr show came back, when Roseanne came back and and there was a really lazy joke that the show did about how they were sitting watching all of the other family shows on ABC. And I think Dan made a joke about how the takeaway that they got from all of the other ABC family comedies was that families are all the same. And that is not what either the ABC family comedies of that time were really about or what Reservation Dogs is. This is a show whose vernacular and whose backdrop is an entirely unique backdrop that you have never seen on an American TV show before. That That is not ambiguous in any way, shape, or form. You have not seen whole episodes sit set in the Native American health service, clinics, you know, schools, etc., etc. You just haven't. So it is a world you have not experienced. It is a world punctuated by language and vernacular that you have not experienced. But every single bit of the show hits on common core I don't know, emotions, reactions, life experiences. And the show is at its best when it does something that is like nothing you've ever seen before. And yet you sit back and you reflect and you go, actually, I see my version of that truth. I see the common shared version of humanity while also understanding the differences. It's also a show that's extraordinarily funny when it wants to be. The lead cast is just remarkable, and it's beyond remarkable because of all of the years that you would hear that there were difficulties casting shows with indigenous actors. And here is this cast that keeps expanding, and everybody in it is fantastic, from Debra Jacobs to Defera Wunatai, Lane Factor, Paulina Alexis, who, who makes me laugh and makes me emotional on a weekly basis. It's an ensemble of actors who Hollywood has never completely known what to do with. People like Wes Studi and Gary Farmer and Graham Greene and Zon McLaren, they've had great roles. There's no question they've had great roles, but none of them have had roles like this. And just every single week, the show finds kernels of emotional truth that are so beautifully rendered that I'm often slack-jawed by the show. So that's my five minute, three minute or seven minute, nine minute, whatever elevator pitch. I feel just fine about that. And uh, guess what? The series finale is next week. And uh, we're probably going to talk much more about it where I'm going to say the exact same things because good God, I just I just love Reservation Dogs. This week's episode was astonishing. The guest star who was in the episode, if you don't know, you have something to look forward to. Just a great performance, a great episode. Yay, I love Reservation Dogs. That was the question for me in this podcast. For Leslie, Aubrey writes, 
when the strikes eventually end, will it be possible that the streamers and networks are so starved for new content that they end up renewing previously canceled shows? Or would it be more likely that content gaps would be filled by brand new series? Does the answer to this depend at all on the network streamer in question or even how long the strikes last? I think it's a great question. Um, I don't think that they're going to be so starved for new content that they renew previously canceled shows because they would have to create new deals and negotiate all of that. It's the same work as putting in an effort into a new series order, trying to reunite casts and all that kind of stuff who may have be juggling other projects and scheduling issues. That That's always a challenge. But I think in the, the bigger answer that I have to this is I think after the strikes are over, there is going to be a contraction in the overall number of scripted shows. The uh, annual FX report, the last numbers that we saw was hovering around 600 US English language scripted originals that are live action. So these don't count animated shows, I believe. And I think that when the strikes end, there is going to be a financial recourse for all of the streamers and studios, and they're going to re- open up the books and say, yes, they have all of this money in the that they've saved but because they haven't been buying and or developing things for the last four plus months. But that doesn't mean that the days of them shelling out $200 million for eight episodes will continue. I think what you're going to see is more content that is broad skewing. Everyone wants the next big hit, right? And the big hit comes when you can get audiences from multiple age demographics. And the best way to do that is to be broad. So a show like Ted Lasso, by the way, and that's something that, as we've said, almost everyone in town passed on before Apple took a flyer on it. That became a big, broad hit. If you like soccer, that's a show that transcends that. But I think what you will see is some of these smaller, quieter shows, some of the stuff that we have raved about on this podcast, I think you'll probably not see shows like that getting made. It's going to be a, a much more challenging ecosystem to come back to when all is said and done. And that's regardless of, of whatever gains the WGA and sag after get from, from their strikes. But I don't think you'll start to see shows that were previously canceled. I do think that, you know, look, ABC has a couple of shows on the bubble. Fox has one or two, I think, as well. People are holding out on those and extending talent deals to wait and see because shows that were already in production, it's just like we said out of, coming out of COVID. Anything that was already in production on on a first season that you already have sets and you maybe have some writers, you know, and some scripts that were already done pre-strike, you want to be able to get something up and running fast when this is all over. So that's part of why you're you're seeing the AMPTP want to negotiate with the writers first, not just because they went out on strike first, but you need scripts before you need actors to perform the work. So I think what you'll see after is anything that can get up and running quickly will. That will be the priority for the streamers and the studios. Yeah. In terms of how the, how long this, the strikes last, the longer things go on, the less likely we are to see anything that was on the bubble actually survive to make it to air. Because at this rate, you know, look, here we are. It's the third week of September, fall season. This is usually premiere week, right? This is like one of the, the broadcast's busiest time of year. And that's not happening, right? Now we're seeing ABC may have to to push Dancing with the Stars. We'll get to that in a segment coming up. But the challenge is that the longer this continues, the less likely you are to see any kind of fall TV season at this point. I had uh, someone this week tell me that unless you can get things up and running by the end of the year, right now you're looking at spring at best. So maybe like a seven episode season of one of your, your tried and true broadcast shows. That's not a season. 
that's a massive financial impact. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling here, but you can kind of see how it's all connected here. And somewhat depressingly in some cases, given that <sighs> given that I just talked about my love for a very, very specific show that has, I think, wonderful and universal themes to it, but that also is probably not the biggest hit on television. So it, it worries me if that's that ends up being where things go, because there's no way that shows like Reservation Dogs cost anywhere near what some of those bigger shows cost. And yet, if choices have to be made, that's that's a little bit depressing. So so thanks, Leslie. <laughs> I mean, I had I had one executive tell me this week that the, the logic is last ones in, first ones out, which is usually the way it works when you're looking at layoffs for just in general. And I've been around long enough <laughs> to be affected by that years ago, but usually it's last one in, first one out. So think about the people who all really were recent to get either shows on the air or overall deals and stuff like that. And those likely will be the people who are going to be affected that the longer this goes and by whatever contraction may be on the other side of this. Ooh, that sounds like a that sounds like a contraction of years of progress. So I hope that that's yep. not the way that things go. <laughs> I hope for the same, my friend. A reminder, once again, that you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. If you have future mailbag segments, as we keep saying, y'all are doing terrific work. Number two. Up next, Leslie mentioned many times questions about how long the strike is going to go on. And as you guys know, we record this podcast on... Thursday midday, give or take, which meant that if you listened to last week's podcast, there were certain things that broke late Thursday afternoon, early Friday that we didn't talk about in the podcast. And, you know, they were semi-important. So keep that in mind as we talk about, well, where do things stand in negotiations and whatnot? Break it down as of midday Thursday, Leslie. Yeah, I mean, the key thing that you mentioned, Dan, is negotiations are actually happening. The AMPTP and the WGA are back at the bargaining table this week. They spent much of Wednesday. The session started at 10 a.m. and lasted until about 4 p.m. and continued Thursday. It's still going on as we record this on Thursday afternoon. The big question now is going to be what offers did they make? Did both sides make? Where are people finding progress? How much progress are they making? And it's very hard to say right now, knowing that things are still going on. But one thing we know for sure is that this, there are four very big executives who have joined the negotiations, and that's Disney's Bob Iger, Universal Content Chief Donna Langley, Netflix's Ted Sarandos, and Warner Brothers Discovery's David Zasloff. They're all present for the latest round. As for what we know coming out of that, well, Coming out of Wednesday's session, the AMPTP, which represents Hollywood studios and streamers, and the Writers Guild issued a rare joint statement. Look, they did something together. That's progress. Their statement was very obvious, just saying that that talks will resume on Thursday. But what matters most here is that they did something together. That is a sign of progress. I've heard from multiple sources that say the longer the talks go on, the, the better situated the negotiations will continue to be. There was a leak this week um, on CNBC with a, a, a morning show anchor reporting that they were close to a deal. That is not what I have heard from my sources as of late Wednesday, early Thursday. But look, progress is progress. And that's something that we haven't been able to say for the last month. I'll take it. One other thing that I know is that I was told that the writer 
Leaders Guild came in with a list of priorities in order of importance, starting with the thorniest, going in order to the least thorny. The issues that were likely at the top included data transparency and AI protections, followed by things like minimum room size, which we know what's important is, while that is an issue for some of the guild, it is not something that is considered an issue for the majority of the guild's 11,500 members. So when you look at data transparency and AI, those are issues that are considered universal to the guild, which is why that they will rank at or near the top. The other rumor that's going around, and I'm reluctant to even mention this because again, I just want to hedge This is a rumor, this is unconfirmed, but we know that heading into these talks, there was a division within the AMPTP where half of the members wanted to move on to to negotiate with SAG-AFTRA, while the other half wanted to continue talks with the, the WGA. So we obviously know what's happened there. The CNBC report is saying that the AMPTP was prepared to present an offer and it was a take it or leave it thing. A lot of writers have said on social media that this was a yet a Another tactic by the streamers and studios. It makes sense to me, but again, I'm going to judge what happens based on what I'm hearing from my sources at the end of today and whatever statements, if any, both sides put out. And if they put out another joint statement, that to me shows continued progress. So there is obviously a renewed interest in getting a deal done. As I said in the mailbag segment, the longer this goes on, the bigger the impact on the fall TV season is. Not that that's where primarily people watch or consume television, but keep in mind that at this point you are looking at programming gaps, not just for television, but massive gaps in the movie calendar. And that does hit these conglomerates directly in the pocketbooks. So stay tuned and we'll see what what happens next. And of course, the longer it goes on, the longer it and greater impact it has on the individual people in the industry. And we'll talk a good deal more about that in our interview segments. Number three. This next segment is kind of a sequel to last week's segment. You might recall that we talked about how America's sweetheart Drew Barrymore, America's grouchy uncle Bill Maher, America's not-American Idol winner Jennifer Hudson, and several other daytime and nighttime type people came in the middle of a little kerfuffle debate, etc., because they announced plans to return to television with or without their writers. Well, without their writers. Well, I mean, without their writers, yes. But not so much. This week's big news was a lot of people stepping back from last week's big news, Where does anything stand with that, Leslie? Yeah, basically, in short, well, remember last week where we talked all about Drew Barrymore and the talk and Jennifer Hudson and Bill Maher all returning? Just select all and hit delete on that. After the WGA and AMPTP announced late last week that talks were indeed resuming after nearly a month of radio silence, most of these hosts flipped the switch. Barrymore put out an emotional video only to later delete it and reverse course on returning. Others did the same, except for Sherry, whose show was delayed after she contracted COVID. Our colleagues Lacey Rose and Rick Porter went inside the big crazy week that was and found that a number of guests who had already been in talks or had agreed to appear on some of these shows were backtracking on agreements to appear on some of them. This week now, the update here, this is where we get to the new info, is that the Writers Guild has been picketing ABC's Dancing with the Stars rehearsals because the show does employ a WGA writer and the show is considered a struck 
program. As of this recording, ABC is considering delaying the premiere of Dancing with the Stars after celebrity participant Matt Walsh of Veep fame said he will pause his involvement until after the writer's strike has concluded. This would also be a good opportunity for the producers of Dancing with the Stars and ABC to pay a couple seconds attention to Adrian Peterson's Wikipedia bio and decide if he's someone they actually want on the show. Anyway, that's a thing I've discussed before. Good on Matt Walsh, continuing to be the good Matt Walsh as opposed to the other guy. Anyway, that made for a very exciting weekend of news as one domino after another fell and probably led to what should have been the case. Anyway, because you really can't make most of these shows without doing things that aren't good. But anyway, stay tuned because there's sure to be more updates to come. Number four. Up next, we're going to take a look at the impact of the dual strikes from another point of view, that from the Entertainment Community Fund, the organization that was founded in 1882 to support those who are in the arts. This week, an anonymous pair of showrunners launched the Showrunner Matching Fundraiser with the goal of raising $500,000 for the Entertainment Community Fund. The effort topped that in a week and is still going strong as showrunners, now including Seth MacFarlane, who separately donated $5 million as part of a $10 million fundraising initiative, gathered to support those in need as the writer's strike inches closer to becoming the longest in WGA history as it approaches its 22nd week and 150th day. As of September 19th, the Entertainment Community Fund has already distributed more than $7.4 million to more than 3,515 film and TV workers, including writer's assistants, production assistants, key grips, gaffers, lighting and sound designers, script supervisors, people working in craft service, hair and makeup professionals, wardrobe insiders, and others. The emergency financial assistance is used to cover basic living expenses like rent, groceries, health insurance, medical bills, mental health support, and more for film and television workers. That's more than the average of 75000 per week before the strikes began. The fund has raised nearly $9 million from more than 10,000 donors since May 1st, with the likes of Greg Berlanti, J.J. Abrams, Steve Carell, Vince Gilligan, Seth MacFarlane, Shonda Rhimes, David E. Kelly, and Steven Spielberg among the donors. Joining us this week is Barbara Davis, who serves as the Chief Operating Officer of the Entertainment Community Fund. Thanks so much for joining us this week, Barbara. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start with some timely news. This week, we saw the showrunner matching fund raise more than half a million dollars. And now Seth MacFarlane has donated $5 million as part of an effort to grow that to $10 million. How helpful are these grassroots efforts like this, especially at a time like this in our industry when we're rapidly approaching the WGA strike becoming the longest in guilt history? These are critical. This is the only way that we're able to help. It's really been the individuals in the industry coming together and those who can helping to provide support to those who need it the most. Seth's leadership is just incredible. Uh, We're so grateful to him, to the thousands of people who have donated over the last few months to help us help people impacted by the work stoppage throughout the country. How have you seen the dual Hollywood strikes really impact the fund overall? Well, we so far have given out just about $7.5 million in emergency financial assistance grants to about 3,500 individuals. We currently have about 1,400 applications that we're processing. 
And we're hearing the stories every day about people's lives and what's happening with them. So it's a very difficult time for folks. They're trying to figure out how to make ends meet until the work starts back up again. You know, you mentioned the stories that you're hearing, and we're obviously hearing them on our end of things too. And some of the things that I'm hearing is stories about writers who have taken second jobs as a way to make ends meet during the work stoppage. What are some of the stories that you've heard? And obviously we want to protect people's identities, but if you could just speak in maybe some broad terms about how dire it is out there, not only for those who are on strike, but workers who are not in either guild but still have been impacted with production ground nearly to a halt. Absolutely. And I would say uh, still, I think the largest percentage of people that we're assisting right now are crew, members of IATSE, people who are support staff, writers' assistants, production assistants, people who use you know the majority of their pay on a weekly basis to cover basic living necessities. So it tends to be people who have incomes and expenses. And when that income stops, it's more difficult. Even, you know, when you look at some of the production jobs, even people who are making $30 an hour, very often now when they look at sideline jobs that they can be doing or survival jobs, they're earning half the amount. They're getting minimum wage jobs, so it's still not enough to cover their basic needs. We're seeing people all over the country, from Atlanta to New Orleans, people in obviously in Los, the Los Angeles area, New York. Film and television production is in a lot of places these days. And a lot of people rely on this industry for their work. I'm going to follow on that, actually, because you guys are New York-based and and Hollywood, of course, is, is Hollywood-based, but obviously the industry stretches, as you say, around the country, around the globe. What have you guys learned about, what have you been seeing about people reaching out from people outside of the New York, LA hubs? And how have you guys had to change your own resource allocation to be able to respond to people outside of those hubs? Sure. And even though our headquarters is in New York, we have offices, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, but we have always served people all over the country. And really since the COVID shutdown, we moved all of our services online from support groups to educational seminars, individual counseling, all of it can be done on Zoom now. So there are no barriers to accessing any of our programs based on where you're located. What is different now, I would say particularly for the New York office, the number of people in Atlanta that we're working with, that Atlanta has been, you know, they've got a big film and television community now. So we're seeing more requests for help coming out of Atlanta than we've seen before. We've worked with folks in New Orleans and Shreveport and areas like that before, but we saw a lot of that at the beginning of the shutdown because those were the cities that were impacted earlier on because of the slowdown with people anticipating the possible shutdown. We still, you know, it, because it's film and television, more people are coming that we're helping are in Los Angeles than anywhere else, but it was Los Angeles, Atlanta, New York as the primary 
areas, uh, and then the Chicago region and Louisiana. How would you compare the influx of need to the early days of the pandemic? In some ways, this is worse. And in some ways, it's better. It's better in that there are other ways to get work, right? You can go outside of the business and find a job, whether it's in a restaurant or whether it's working for some other type of company, etc. So that's good. It's worse in that you don't have the same governmental supports and protections that you did during COVID. Uh, Emergency unemployment during COVID was much more generous, quick, and depending on what state you're living in here, if you're in California or Georgia, you have not been able to be eligible for unemployment benefits if your union's on strike at all. So New York, actually, a a member of a union that's on strike is still eligible. New York is one of the few states that does provide that help, which has been huge for people who needed it. Yeah. And obviously in California, this is a bill that that is currently at Gavin Gavin Newsom's desk to sign or not sign. But hopefully it's on. Yeah. And I think these last three or four months have shown the incredible need for that kind of support for labor. As somebody said to me yesterday, you know, there's a lot of assistance to the banks when they're having difficulty. Individual workers should be getting that same consideration. There was a story early on in, in the strike on deadline that quoted an anonymous executive that said that the AMPTP wanted the strike to go on to the point where writers began losing their houses. Yeah. Have you heard of situations like that popping up, whether it's in LA, New York, Atlanta? Yes. We've been seeing a lot of people who's, who have already uh, lost their homes. People who c- certainly in states that have fewer protections for tenants. New York actually is a better situation. It takes a long time to evict someone from an apartment in New York. You have to go to court, the judges decide, not the landlords, et cetera. But in other states, we've been seeing people losing their homes after two months of not being able to pay their rent. More people are living in their cars. We're seeing really terrible stressors with, with single family homes. I mean, some, sorry, single families who uh, this was the only person earning an income uh, with multiple children to support. So, yeah, there's been a lot of very difficult stories. And that was a horrible thing to, to for anybody under any circumstances to have said. I, have to, I will say uh, that evening, the night that that happened, we received over a thousand donations online overnight because of the shock that people went through that that was said and, and out in the media. How often have you been able to kind of find that direct correlation? Like if one of the executives from Warner Brothers Discovery or Disney says something in the media that is presented a little bit callously, have you been able to mostly actually look and say, oh, okay, there's a spike in donations there? Yeah, I don't think we've looked that closely. I think that this that was the one incident that it was such a shock to everybody. And we saw such a jump that night. It doesn't happen often, but it did. It did then. You know, going back to what you were saying, there are there are lots of concerns around people's inability to continue paying for their basic needs. You know, one of the the tragic things is people are taking loans out and borrowing against their retirement plans. 
that's that's frightening because of a lot of reasons, the penalties involved and the taxes, uh, if they don't pay it back in a certain amount of time, the impact it could have on somebody, you know, if they're in their 50s and they don't have a lot of years to make this up, this sort of impact can go on for many, many years. You've been with the fund since 1984. How does this labor movement compare to others that you've experienced during your tenure? So I, I think the easiest comparison would be the uh, the strike in 2007, 2008. At that time, I think we're better known as an organization within particularly the film and television community now, especially after COVID, when we provided over $30 million in financial assistance to people. Wow. But even with that, I think that the impact of COVID on people's savings and resiliency was clear. People were in worse shape to begin with when the, the strike first happened. I think a lot of people were more challenged than they were in 2007 at that time. We received many more people contacting us for assistance very early. The last time, the majority of people we helped, we helped at the end of the strike, not at the beginning. Now we are seeing many more people a lot sooner. It is different. I mean, I, I, I was looking back at our numbers. Uh, that last strike, which was 100 days, we provided $1.6 million in emergency assistance. I think by the time we're done with this, we will have spent probably around $20 million. One thing, and, and you've mentioned this earlier, or you've sort of talked around it, but you know, people hear fund and they immediately think, okay, financial support. But what you guys do goes well beyond that. You mentioned workshops, you mentioned career services. Talk a bit about the things beyond just money that you guys do. The Entertainment Community Fund has a lot of different programs, but some of the core ones are Career Center that helps people develop sideline or parallel careers and look at their careers holistically to develop multiple sources of income. So the Career Center right now is helping people focus on what kind of work can I be doing when there's a work stoppage in my industry. So it's where we've been doing classes on everything from content makers for helping writers look at how do you get work, freelance work and social media to looking at temp or traditional temp jobs, how to adjust your resume and make sure that your transferable skills are understood by traditional or what we call civilian employers. So that we have a lot of different workshops that are specific to people who cannot be working in their primary craft right now. We do are doing a lot of work around the financial wellness program. So we've been doing classes on managing your budgets during times like this. How do you deal with your mortgage company? How to negotiate uh, with your different kinds of bills from credit card bills to utility companies? We've also been doing a lot around mental health. So we run a monthly group 
uh, it's a three session class every month called uh, Anxiety Toolbox. And it really takes the, the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy and teaches people how to apply that to managing their own anxiety during very difficult times. So uh, that's not everything to, to get the whole list. Just go to our website. Everything is listed on there. You can register for all of our groups and seminars and support groups uh, through the website. And it's pretty And clear. that's entertainmentcommunity.org Correct. for those Thank curious. You. Are, are there specific uh, resources or sort of non-financial needs that you guys are particularly looking for at this point? I mean, we're always looking to provide resources. Do you mean to, for us to provide to to people coming to us? Well, if like if, if people said, how can we help? Would you say help by writing a check or are there other ways that you would tell people they could also help? That's a great question. Writing a check right now is a wonderful thing. It's amazing, you know, this is such a creative community we work with, right? These are, this is it when it comes to the creative community. They've been doing so many fun things to raise money from creating and selling t-shirts to doing stand-up comedy. There's a lot of ways that people in the industry can come together and raise money. But And those things are to raise money, but fun ways to do it as a community. We're not really looking for volunteers on an ongoing basis in terms of working in the office or anything, because that's not what's needed right now. But there are a lot of things that people can do in different communities. So, for example, we're working right now with volunteer members uh, of IATSE to put together a, a food drive day. And there have been a number of really wonderful food drives in Los Angeles that have happened. I know that the folks, uh, the IA at, in Atlanta are working, I believe, with folks at the Tyler Perry's, Tyler Perry Studios to do a food drive. So there's a lot that people in their communities can do to help and assist those impacted by the work stoppage. And is there a way that people can donate specifically or just head over to the website? Head over to the website. It's really easy. <laughs> it's really clear. Homepage of our website to donate. Barbara, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, this has been really uh, informative. Thank you for all that you're doing to help the people of our community. Great. Thank you. Thank you for shining the light on it. Uh, much appreciated. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Young Love, The Continental, Sex Education, and finally, Crapopolis, which I feel like we've been talking about for like five years now. We have indeed, and that's Crapopolis, the first season, not to be confused with subsequent seasons of Crapopolis because it's already been renewed for through its third season, I believe, because that is just the way you have to do things involving sort of a mixed bag assortment of things this week. Some of them are 
good. Some of them are not good. Some of them, hell, you've even already watched some of them. Uh, We can start with sex education. Hey, Leslie, go back to your magical document. Tell me when we chatted with the creator of sex education. Lori Nunn joined us in episode 138 from October 1st, 2021. Yet another good chat. This is the final season of sex education, and there are times in this season where it feels notably like they're heading towards some sort of conclusion. And then there are times where it kind of doesn't. And a lot of my head scratching with these final eight episodes is that on one hand, a lot of regulars from the show got moved out of the show entirely, and in some cases aren't even so much as mentioned in this final season. And and some of that actually kind of bothered me a little. There are two or three characters who, even if they weren't going to be in this season, I feel like they probably warranted some amount of acknowledgement if you're going to be wrapping up the show. And very clearly, when you get to the end, it feels as if they were very much conscious of this being the end. There are a lot of new faces, as people will remember from last season. Maeve was going off to America for some program or other, which is not particularly convincing in America. But Dan Levy plays a creative writing teacher, former Wunderkind author, who is both a mentor and then sometimes contentious with Maeve. Uh, Not always all that fluidly integrated to the rest of the show, other than that basically having Maeve off in a foreign country and away makes Asa Butterfield's Otis, I would say, even more insufferable. And I think that's kind of what the theme of the final season (laughs) ends up being is kind of, on one hand, Otis was coronated as a brilliant junior sex therapist and everyone treated his word as gospel. On the other hand, Otis has kind of sucked for three seasons. He's always been very, very self-obsessed. He's often let his friends and loved ones down through his myopia, etc., etc. And a lot of the things that work best for me this season are people calling Otis out on his bullshit, which again is an acknowledgement that the show knows that maybe having a teenage sex therapist at your school is not necessarily the best of ideas. Sometimes there might be flaws to having people who don't have life experience giving out important life advice. The show knows that, and I think that's a clever thing about the show. The final season is a a really good season of television. It has flaws. It has things where it kind of jumps in logic and where maybe I might have liked for a little bit more, I don't know, who knows what anywhere. Lots of things where I, I might have just enjoyed, say, another two or three seasons of the television show, but that's okay. Uh, No, I enjoyed this season because I enjoyed this show very much. And it has kind of a final season-itis aspect to it in that at a certain point, episodes start getting really, really long. The finale is, I think, uh, 85 minutes, which is definitely not Stranger Things length, but is plenty long. It's also definitely not the Continental length, but I'll talk about that in a a couple seconds. I found this generally satisfying, and and a lot of it is just so big-hearted and so inclusive, and you sense the writers are just trying to, you know, at the worst what the show suffers from is the writers trying to make sure they address as many different types of people as possible so that everyone feels seen, so that everyone gets to go, okay, God, I wish I was a a young trans kid and there was a show like this. I wish I was a young non-binary kid and there was a show like this. I wish I was debating whether I wanted to get top surgery and I wish there was a show like this. There's, there's a lot of the show feeling a responsibility. How many shows out there don't feel like they have any responsibility to their audience? I don't want to ever criticize a show for feeling like it needs to be responsible for lots of audiences. And it's kind of funny because towards the end of the season, it becomes a, well, okay, here we are taking this responsibility on. But even when we take on the responsibilities to a 
acknowledge these communities, sometimes we lose track of these other communities. It's just tough. And I think that's a lot of what the show is about, is that you just, you want to hear every voice, you want to listen to everybody, you want to acknowledge the shared humanity of it all. And I think the show is important for that. Uh, Leslie, this is one that I know you've watched. And and when we have our conversation about this one next week, because probably we're going to talk about this and Reservation Dogs, so be sure to catch up. That'll allow you to talk, even though you're not a critic. What do you think of these final eight episodes? Loved it. <laughs> Any, anything more? Or will you join um, us more next week? They, from- they were able to do character rehab on my least favorite character this season, which I didn't think was possible. Does that mean Adam or someone else? No, it's Isaac. Oh, Isaac. Oh. Okay. Um, no, Isaac Isaac was creepy and insufferable yeah. last season, and they absolutely did some good stuff with him this season, for sure. I think the penultimate, the final two episodes of the series are probably my favorite episodes of television that I've seen this year. I love this show. I really hope that there's a spinoff. I have no information on it, on if there is or if there isn't, but... I think you can look at the cast and how everyone has a lot of the major faces here have gone on to bigger and better things. But Eric has a great storyline. I love the the Maven Otis stuff, even though Otis, as you said, is in fact insufferable half the time. I ship them and I ship them hard. Yeah, I'm just I think it was really done really, really well. The new characters at first are a little grating. Uh, I found them to be a little bit grating. I missed being at Moordale. I missed some of the characters that we didn't get a chance to say farewell to. But after a little while, you become so invested in this new school and this new way of life for these characters. It's nice to reacclimate myself with them and feel their journey, which is obviously a big part of change when you change schools, etc. That's obviously a common refrain that's a universal emotion. Anyways, I've said enough. I loved the season. I loved how it ended. And the final two episodes, just right in the heart. (laughs) Yeah, we will. We will hopefully be talking about this with a guest next week. So uh, we'll we'll cover more detail. But again, if you if you have not, well, of course, you haven't watched it because it just well, you might watch some of it because it just came out. But anyway, we will talk about it with spoilers next week. I don't think we've spoiled anything. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of animated shows. Sure, I'll get Crapopolis out of the way, I guess. It is uh, created by Dan Harmon, and it's, as we, we've said several times, it is Fox Animation, and it was ordered a long time ago, and it is set in ancient Greece, but a sort of half-historical, half-mythological ancient Greece, and so it focuses on a king of a newly founded city called Crapopolis. He is the son of a secondary god named Deliria, voiced by Hannah Waddingham, and a strange and horny hybrid creature voiced by Matt Berry. The main character is voiced by Richard Ayaday. And it's it's just really flat. I, I don't know, I don't know what else to say about it, honestly, because it's just flat the animation is is flat the writing is flat the thing that is not flat is the vocal talent and that is where my laughter came matt berry doing matt berry things is always funny if you have seen anything matt berry has done he is an actor who is almost incapable of giving a non-amusing line reading and so he doesn't hear i think probably i don't think i laughed at all at the first that Fox sent out three episodes. 
Um, I don't think I laughed at all at the first or the third episodes. I might have smiled a couple times. The second episode, I laughed a few times. And I think just about every time I laughed, it was either because of something funny that Matt Berry did or something funny that Hannah Waddingham did. And they are extremely funny. And some of the guest voices are fairly amusing because they're talented people. You know, you give somebody like Yvette Nicole Brown kind of bland material, she can generally make it somewhat funny. You give Keith David anything. Keith David is always going to be entertaining to listen to. But in terms of its actual focus and its actual story, it's another one of those animated shows looking at kind of ancient things through a dramatic irony lens of, okay, it's, you know, it's the Stone Age, but they're using cars that they have to run with their feet it's a little bit Flintstone-y or whatever it is that uh, Netflix is disenchanted, which I know has some fans, but mostly to me feels like it's kind of slipped entirely out of the cultural conversation. It's not nearly this show. Crapopolis is not nearly as funny as disenchanted and disenchanted is decidedly hit and miss. Mostly just like you watch a show like this and you're We've been trained by years of great animation to be looking for funny background gags, to be looking at the nuance of some of the carefully rendered animation, etc. And this is just really slack. It's, it's just not, it doesn't feel there. Now, of course... Fox has seen significantly more than I have, and it's entirely possible, because this is a thing that happens on animated shows all the time, that it gets better. I I don't I don't know. Even some of my absolute favorite animated shows, whether it's The Simpsons or Bojack Horseman or whatever, required more than three episodes to get where they were going on a qualitative level. So it absolutely does not mean that this is a TV show that is doomed because it isn't where it needs to be in its first episode. It's just kind of disappointing, unfortunately. I think that Max's Young Love, which is kind of an extension of Hair Love, which was an Oscar winner for animated short a couple years ago, I think it comes much closer to finding what it is in its first episode, certainly than Kripopoulos does. Uh, Matthew H. Cherry, who has been a very, very reliable television director now for a handful of years and who was one of the co-creators of the animated short, he's behind this. And the, you know, the short is just, it's it's six minutes basically of a father, of a black father trying to do his daughter's hair because it was something that the mother always did over the years, but the mother has been getting cancer treatment. And so the mother is not around. And so it's, it's kind of this celebration of black fatherhood and just a really, really sweet emotional roller coaster in six minutes. The show has a little bit more difficulty coming up with what its demographic is. I would say that probably the short is it's it's more gener- it's more directed at kids. It's more about isn't this a cute situation? Isn't it funny that her hair has a life of its own, etc. But it's for all ages. I would say that this skews significantly older, despite the fact that the daughter remains a major character. Uh, that there's a, a cute animated cat, etc. But it's much more about the relationship between the main couple, they aren't married, and that's a plot point, uh, voiced by Kid Cudi and Issa Rae. So it's about kind of their economic situation, and I thought a lot of that was really good, and I thought a lot of the depiction of the Chicago setting was really good. There were things that made me laugh. There's a great soundtrack throughout because the character voiced by Kid Cudi is a music producer, and so, you know, he's he's constantly coming up with beats, and that's fun. I, I mostly enjoyed this. I watched, it's a 12-episode first season. I watched six or seven episodes, and I thought it was distinctive. I thought it was distinctive and different, but I don't 
honestly know if either of the available audience age demos is going to feel completely satisfied by it. I don't think it's a show that really is going to work for the youngest of viewers. If you have like a six or seven or eight year old who maybe watched the the short and totally loved it, I don't think this is going to work for them. You know, and I don't necessarily know that your basic sort of fan of adult animation in their upper 20s or 30s is instantly going to latch on either. But I think as kind of a show that's right in, in between, I think it probably would would make both demographics generally amused enough. I like Young Love. That's uh, that's HBO Max, which is not HBO Max anymore. It's just Max, but it'll always be HBO Max to me. Last but not least, The Continental from the world of John Wick. I just don't know. I mean, look, honestly, the best... The kindest and most enthusiastic thing I can say about the show is that I was going to be annoyed with the show because of Mel Gibson regardless. And having watched it, for the most part, I don't feel like my problems with the show really are all that much about Mel Gibson. So, yay. Like, I don't know what to say about that. Am I perpetually irritated by the fact that there was no available high-profile actor who they could hire who didn't have a multi-decade record of homophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, uh, and misogyny, and accusations of domestic violence. Well, yes, I am upset that there are no high-profile actors who don't have that particular record who could have starred in this show, but I don't think that The Continental is any better or any worse for having Mel Gibson there or not there. I can tell you that For the first two episodes, he's barely there at all. He's almost totally an afterthought. The third episode, there's a lot of him, and the character takes some drug-related supplements and basically goes kind of batshit crazy, and Mel Gibson does that competently enough. Uh, It is... The third episode is an it is an extremely hammy performance by Mel Gibson. That is my high praise for the work of Mel Gibson in The Continental. Let us not discuss him anymore, but we can discuss the rest of the show. To me, the show, which is, it is a three-night event, but each part is an hour and a half or more. The first episode, kind of hit and miss. The second episode, I thought was utterly stultifying. I thought the second episode couldn't have been duller. The third episode is absolutely action-packed, and it's probably very close to what fans of the John Wick series are looking for in terms of action, but with the problem being that if the first two episodes were hit and miss and rather dull, that means that the third episode, however exciting the action is, and I'll say again, sometimes the action in the third episode really and truly is a lot of fun. It is sometimes fairly exciting and fairly impressive, uh, directed by Albert Hughes. And, you know, you you go, okay, not bad. They put some effort into that. But it still is a lot of effort involving characters who you really don't care about. And part of the problem with that is that there's just no acknowledgement of how much of the appeal of the John Wick movies is their simplicity. Yes, if you keep watching beyond the first movie, it starts in the first movie, but it continues. There's all of that stuff involving the Continental and all of that stuff with adjudicators and all of that stuff with coins and silly stuff in Latin and all of that. The show's about a guy whose dog got killed and he goes on uh, on a mission of revenge for his dog. One guy, one dog, one mission of revenge. The first episode of the Continental introduces like 15 different characters who it is completely impossible to care about 
in any way. Sometimes you eventually do get to care about them, sometimes not. I would say that given how much of the movies is all about how fantastic, how charismatic, and how instantly easy it is to sympathize with Keanu Reeves, it absolutely is. It's instant death to the show that unfortunately Colin Woodall in the main character is just a bore. And, and the main character is just a bore. So you've got a, a, a blank spot at the center regardless. There are colorful characters and colorful supporting performances that you can get into. And, and so you kind of go through some of the supporting performers and, you know, some people like, for example, Ray McKinnon has a key role. I always love Ray McKinnon, partially because it's my feeling that if he takes a paycheck role like this, maybe he's going to parlay that money into doing a follow-up TV series to rectify because it still upsets me that Ray McKinnon has made has created one show and it's one of the great shows ever. You should watch Rectify if you have access to it on any of your streaming services. And he hasn't done another, which could just mean he doesn't have other stories to tell, which is which is fine because he told that one and he told it fantastically. Peter Green, somewhat wacky character actor from the 90s, has a good role in the second episode. Always happy to see him. Michelle Prada from Vita. Loved her on Vita. Not necessarily sure this is a great vehicle for her, but I'm happy to see her working again. A lot of people doing strange 70s New York accents who aren't necessarily prepared to do it, but still, it's it's just, there's a lot of storytelling when very little storytelling was really required. Everything should have been, you know, the great quote from Nazi collaborator Coco Chanel about looking at what you're wearing and taking off one thing. They needed to look at what the scripts were for this and take off 50 things. They needed to figure out what is the way we can do it so that there is one storyline that everybody will relate to and care about, as opposed to 10 storylines that people will maybe a little bit care about eventually building up to a third episode in which things absolutely get exciting. I'm not going to question that. So yeah, first episode, kind of mixed bag. There are worthwhile things. Second episode, really kind of awful. Third episode, really a lot of fun, except a lot of fun that there's no way to get invested in in any way, shape, or form. Just not... It it shows that I'm not really sure that there's an expansion of the John Wick universe that was actually necessary. Anyway, that's on that's on Peacock. It originally started off on Stars and then migrated. Yeah. So of of the four things this week, I liked Sex Education the most. Leslie definitely did. I liked Young Love probably second most. Crapopolis on Fox is just kind of flat. It's definitely not offensively bad, but it's also not in any way exciting. And yeah, just talked extensively about the Continental on Peacock. That's what it is. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. We appreciate it, and it helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come and say hi to us on various social media platforms. She's always at Snoodit with two O's. I'm always at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. And in case we didn't mention it enough times in the first segment and haven't mentioned it enough in past weeks, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, we always love to get them. Email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.